love you to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 15 this morning. Mark chapter number 15. If you need it, there should be a Bible there in front of you underneath the seats. You'll see the bluish black books, of course, are the hymns, red or maroonish type books are the, are the Bibles. Love for you to have it before your eyes if you can. And if you're willing and able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we'll pick up our reading this morning in Mark chapter 15, in verse number 33. And as many of you know, um, some of you may not, we've taken our time just to go through the book of Mark verse by verse. So this has been a long journey. And it just so happens that providentially this time of year our Lord would put us here, which makes most of these texts very appropriate for, for the season. And I almost went to a different place, but I, I think the Lord would have us to stay here this morning. And I want to read just two verses. We'll go to the Lord in prayer and you can be seated. In Mark chapter 15 and verse number 33, you read these words. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let us pray. Father, we come to you again just to thank you and praise you for the reality of who you are. Father, we thank you for creating us, for knitting us in our mother's wombs. Father, we thank you for the pleasure it is and to rejoice in you, Father, but also just in natural creation. Father, we did not deserve to be created, but in, but in your supernatural workings and in your natural workings, Father, you saw fit for us to enter into this life, Father, and to experience such joys and pleasures um, as life itself, relationships, and a whole host of other blessings. Father, more than that, you've, I pray, um, provoked our heart towards you. Father, because a life led otherwise it's not a life at all so, father i pray this morning that as we gather together you would continue to do that and father that each and every one of us know that there's a god we the scripture teaches us that clearly and i pray this morning that you would continue to reveal that god to each one of us father specifically and specially through your revelation father that you would show us christ this morning and regardless of age father regardless of of class creed or color lord that you would um, take the Word of God to the very depths of our hearts, Father, and continue to reveal to us Your Son. Father, we need You this morning more than anything else in this world, more than our food and drink, more than clothing and housing, Father. We need um, to be fed from Your storehouse. So, Lord, as we gather around the Word of God, would You take it, Father, to the depths of our hearts, and would You take it places, Father, that we can't go? Uh, would you minister to the hearts of each person here in a way, Father, that feeds their souls, that draws them to you, Father, that brings life, Father, in the depths of their hearts and provokes them to worship and to honor you. Father, would you help me to be faithful to the word this morning, Father, to break the bread of life in a way that's honoring to Christ, Father, not to put myself forward or not to put anyone else forward, but at the end of the sermon, Father, that Jesus Christ and Christ alone would be exalted above all else. And that you would bring us, Father, to the point of, of um, each of us, Father, um, to that point that, that we would see him exalted, Father, and that you would bring us and draw us all 
nigh to him. Um, at the end of the sermon, Father, make us, make us flee to you, Father, and not run away. Father, we need you to accomplish this because we can't do it ourselves. Father, persuasion only goes so far in the intellect of man. So we pray that you would give new hearts, Father. We, take, we pray that you would just reveal the majesties of Christ, Father. We just pray that you'd give us a love for the Word of God uh, as we're not naturally inclined that way, Father. We pray that you would reveal yourself in a way, Father, um, that would show us Christ and draw us nigh unto him. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we gather this morning on resurrection morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And um, it truly was a blessed morning. But we must never forget that the beauty and the brightness of resurrection morning was only so beautiful because it was painted upon what we might call the darkest of canvases, which was the cross. You see, resurrection demands death. And death, and what a death it was. See, resurrection can only happen in the environment of death. Something can only be revived that was once lifeless. And thus to speak of resurrection and to speak of the reality of Easter morning and to speak of the joy, to speak of the pleasure, to speak of the wonders of such a, a great day, to stand up with a shout in your voice and a smile on your face and, and strengthen your bones to serve and to honor Christ um, is, is not to cling to resurrection morning in and of itself, but it is to, to cling to that which it was born out of, um, which was death. We have with great authority to say that this was not only the most glorious of days, but it was born out of probably the most atrocious crime that was ever committed upon an earthly soil. Not only in this time, but all throughout eternity. The very Son of God, equal with God, stood, was tried by men for crimes never committed and found guilty. But at the same time, what makes it the most atrocious crime, we might ask? Many will argue that it was the cross or the physical sufferings of Jesus. Many men have written about, discussed, even attempted to illustrate this visually, often referred to as the passion of Christ. And when I say the passion of Christ, I'm not just speaking about the movie. The movie was named after a common title given of the account of Christ's sufferings, which was the Passion. Objectively speaking, um, the, the term Passion comes from a Latin word that literally means to suffer. That's why we refer to it as the Passion. Not, 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 not that Jesus was just fervently endeavoring um, upon the, towards the cross, but the Passion, the cross was the Passion. It was His sufferings. And objectively, historically, we have that account. We have in our hands, particularly in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the objective sufferings of the Messiah and what a terrible and a horrible account we have. The, the crucifixion, some have noted that it was, quote, a means of waging war and securing peace by wearing down rebellious cities under siege. It was used to break the will of a conquered people and bring mutinous troops of, unru of unruly provinces under control. That Rome's answer to subdue all of the, the, the worlds around them and all of the civilization and even sometimes their own 
was to utilize what may be referred to as um, the 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 um, the pinnacle of torture devices. The cross was that. It was torture in some sense perfected. Rome's answer to subdue all of those who would rebel would be to put up crosses and crucify people in droves so that the multitudes would see what would happen if you dare raise a fist against the mighty empire of Nero. But it's interesting. During this time, we'll often... Um, exaggerate and even emphasize those sufferings, but others would do the exact opposite. Many men have concluded that because the Bible seems to put little emphasis upon the details of the physical proceedings of the crucifixion, that we should as well not speak of what happened to Christ. This is an area that we should be silent on because the Bible is fairly silent on. But it could very well be that the Bible's lacking in minute detail upon the crucifixion and the physical suffering so, uh, of Christ simply because it didn't need to be said. They didn't need to explain in ultimate detail exactly what our Lord endured. And that's why um, Mark can say and Matthew can say in just somewhat pithy statements that He was crucified because they knew what it meant. That while we are a culturally and historically removed church and people from such barbarism, that to speak of crucifixion and to say that to our children or to speak of it to one another may not um, ring in our hearts with the horror that it would have the readers of Mark. That whenever Mark writes such a statement as, and they crucified Him, it would have rang terror in the hearts of all those who would have read. Why? Because they would have walked by places like Golgotha. They would have seen the hill. They would have seen droves of people raised upon crosses day after day after day. And they would have known what the horror was. They would have heard the screams. Um, they would have seen the pain. They would have seen men and, and those who rebelled against Rome. They would have seen them give up the ghost and, and breathe their last. So for Mark to say that something as simple as they crucified Him was to say volumes in the heart of the average man during that time. Thus, I think it is too sometimes appropriate for us to talk about crucifixion. Um, to take time outside of the Bible and to sit down and see what our Lord would have endured. In 1986, in a journal of the American Medical Association entitled On the Physical Death of Christ, um, you read these words, which was written by two doctors and a seminary student. With knowledge of both anatomy and the ancient crucifixion practices, one may reconstruct the probable medical aspects of this form of slow execution. Each wound apparently was intended to produce intense agony, and the contributing causes of death were numerous. The scourging prior to crucifixion served a weak and a condemned man. And if blood loss was considerable, to produce hypotension and even hypovolemic shock. When the victim was thrown on the ground on his back in preparation for transfixi transfixiation, his scourging wounds would most likely uh, be, be torn open again and contaminated with dirt. He goes on to say that with the outstretched arms, but not taut, the wrists were nailed to the cross. It's been shown that the ligaments and the bones of the wrist can support the weight of a body hanging from them, but the palms cannot. 
According to the iron spikes were probably driven between the carpels and the radius or between the two rows of the carpal bones. Either proximal to or through the strong band-like reticulum and the various intercarpal ligaments. Although a nail in either location of the wrist might pass between bony elements, the likelihood of painful injury would seem great. Furthermore, the driven nail would crush or sever the large sensory motor median nerve. And the nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. Although the severed median nerve would result in paralysis of a portion of the hand, ischemic contractures and impalement of various ligaments by the iron spike might produce a claw-like grasp. He goes on to speak about being nailed into the, his feet and all the physiologic effects of that. But he also says, beyond the excruciating pain was marked an interference with normal respiration, particularly exhalation. The weight of the body pulling down on the, show, on the outstretched arms and shoulders would tend to fix the intercostal muscles, the intercostal muscles in an inhalation state and thereby hinder passive exhalation. He wouldn't be able to breathe well on his own. Accordingly, exhalation was primarily diaphragmatic and the breathing was shallow. It is likely that this form of respiration would not suffice. It wouldn't be sufficient. And that too much carbon would, or, uh, would, would build up in his body. And the onset of muscle cramps and contractions due to fatigue would hinder respiration even further. He goes on to say adequate exhalation or the, the ability to breathe out required lifting up the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows and adducting the shoulders. However, the maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce a searing pain. And what he's saying is he's saying that every time that our Lord wanted to breathe or to speak, he would have to push up upon the nails and upon the hands and it would, it would be excruciating pain. Some have wondered why he was so silent upon the cross and only says seven things. And maybe that's all that he says. But it could very well be because every time that he said it, um, he, had, he was excruciating in the humanity of our Lord. He goes on and finishes the article with the actual cause of death by crucifixion was multifactorial. It varied somewhat with each case. But the two most prominent causes probably were shock and exhaustion from asphyxia. He couldn't, uh, from, from, uh, from, from not being able to breathe. He, su- he suffocated to death. Other possible factors were dehydration, arrhythmias caused from pericardial effusions, which is just fluid building up around the heart. And you'll remember as they, 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 they pierced him with that spear, water flowed out. It very well could be that he entered into a state of what was called heart failure and, 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 and fluid began to build up around the heart, uh, and it, disabling it from even being able to pump. And whenever he pierced it, the water flowed out from that sack around the heart and it, it, it bursts. The crucifixion, he goes on to say, is performed. The breaking of legs often follow, which lead to death within minutes. Death by crucifixion, he ends with, in every sense of the word is excruciating, which comes from the Latin word excruciatus, or literally means out of the cross. What we have here is perfected. Um, the, 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 almost the perfection of torture and death. Which would, which would be exacted and administered upon rebels, not in a way to extend mercy to a man, but in a way to create the slowest painful death that he possibly could, such that he generally dies upon his own as he suffocates to death, and that if he battles to breathe, then it creates the utmost excruciating pain in his hands and in his feet, 
and that would not be able to be sustained for long. Thus, he would stay down. And whenever he fought harder, Rome would break his legs so that he could no longer rise. Thus creating the, the, the longest, the slowest, perfected death um, that could possibly be known to mankind. And every time our Lord moved, every time our Lord breathed, every time our Lord spoke, He rose up. It was excruciating. And I say all that to say this. But are the physical sufferings alone what really make it that atrocious? We sit in our seats and we talk about that and we're so moved by the passion. We're so moved by the physical sufferings of Christ. Especially when we think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, enduring that on our behalf. But the question this morning is not necessarily for that. It's not to provoke you or to make you emote or for you to be affected and say, oh, poor lowly Jesus. Jesus was a king. Again, I will continue to reemphasize this. That our Lord at any moment could have removed Himself from that cross. He could have called down legions of angels, 10,000 or more. Um, as they cry out to Him and they ridicule Him, you've saved others, save yourself. Um, at any moment, He could have released Himself from that cross, picked up that, the, the, the back end of it, and ended them all. But He did not. And any other man would have cried for mercy. Any other man would have risen up and done whatever they would have asked. But not our Lord. Why? Because He had His face set like a flint towards Jerusalem. He had a goal in mind. He had a purpose behind it all. And to save Himself was to save no one. Um, thus, He continues on and He endures the physical sufferings that are there. But, but again, I would ask you, but is the physical death of our Lord that which makes it so atrocious? Is that... Really, the, the purpose, or, 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 or behind it all, is that really the greatest sufferings of our Lord? Many will argue that this was a unique physical death that surpassed all others in the space-time continuum. And maybe that's true. But what we also need to realize is that Jesus was not, only, uh, was not the only person to have ever been crucified. One reason that the death of Christ is so brutal is because for decades and possibly centuries, that Rome had been perfecting this instrument upon men by the thousands. If this was not their first rodeo, 100 years earlier, 120,000 slaves under the leadership of Spartacus were in an open revolt against the Roman Republic, and the rebellion was eventually crushed, 6,000 of which were crucified, along, with 200, uh, along the 200-kilometer Appian Way. You can imagine going down uh, the, 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 the shore side and seeing 6,000 men piled up with bodies who had been crucified upon hundreds of crosses. And that was just a portion of what Rome did and what they were capable to do in, an un, in a merciless fashion. So it wasn't the first time that they had crucified an innocent man. It wasn't the first time that they had cast lots to determine some part of a perpetrator's punishment. It wasn't the first time that they had beat someone within an inch of their life or even beyond human recognition. It wasn't the first time they unleashed a cat of nine tails across a man's back. It wasn't the first time they ripped flesh from His body. It wasn't their first time. But it was the first time that they ever did it to the Son of God. And they did it brutally in such a way to send a message to anyone who would withstand Rome and the Jewish people. But was that what made it, again, such the crime of all eternity? The physical sufferings of Christ? Some would say no. If this was brutal, 
But not all that unique seeing that many were crucified by the thousands at times. So the objective data, yes, we are horrified. But what if we had an, a subject what if we had a subjective account? What if we knew what Christ endured not only physically from the external, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually? The Gospels overwhelmingly focus upon the objective criteria, the data, that which they saw, that which they heard. Did He endure more than simple physical pains? The Gospel of Mark this morning, I think, will give us some insight concerning that, but also we'll, we'll turn eventually to Psalm chapter 22, which I think in some sense is the Gospel according to Christ. It is His perspective upon the cross. It is what He endured. It is from His mouth, it seems. That throughout Psalm chapter 22, what you see is our Lord. Uh, you know, the, the Gospel writers as well as the, the, the New Testament writers after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John refer to Psalm 22 and they apply it to Christ in so many fashions. What we see there is the exact words that we have here in Mark chapter number um, 15. Psalm chapter 22 opens like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from, my, and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of people. All, who, all those who see me ridicule me and shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. But you are He who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I cast upon you from birth. But from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws and have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for, and for my clothing, they cast my lot. They cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And I'll just say... Just to reiterate initially, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Lord, where are you? And that's exactly what we see here in Mark chapter number 15. Without quite the detail, Mark chapter 15 and verse number 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, 
with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark tells us that when the sixth hour had come, the sixth hour would have been around noontime according to the Jewish day, that there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. All three synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, specify the very last three hours of our, of our Lord's life. They all specify what happens at the sixth hour. And they all specify what happens at the ninth hour. They all focus. For, and up to this point, He would have been upon the cross for three hours. A total, a total of six hours upon the cross. The first three is what I just read. You'll remember that he carries that great cross. He's, he's been flogged. He's, he, he's bleeding half to death. He's exhausted. He can't carry it. Um, Simon, uh, they, they compel him to pick up the, the lighter end of the cross and to carry it all the way up. They raise him up on the cross. They, they've already nailed his feet and they've, they, they've pierced his hands. And there he is for three hours being ridiculed and mocked as the king. And at the sixth hour, there's a change. Um, there's a change. As I said, they focus upon three hour periods of time, the sixth hour and the ninth hour. The sixth hour has already been there for three hours. Up to this point, it's been nothing but hustle and bustle. It's been fast paced, one event right after another. There's constant berating, Roman games with our Lord, and now it all stops. It's done. All the evil that filled the air seems to now dissipate on the pages of Scripture. And if you're not careful, what we'll do is we'll miss it. Because we'll read fast. And you'll think that just after beating after beating and ridicule after ridicule, mockings continually, games played with our Lord's life, the casting of lots, the dividing of garments, that He just dies. But that's not actually how the text goes. What you actually see is the Scripture in the last three hours are subdued. Out of all the sayings of Christ, all the activity of Rome, all the mockery of the Jews, that there's not one event recorded between the sixth hour and the ninth hour. With the exception of the sixth hour introducing to us the three hours with darkness that fell upon and hushed the whole scene. That Mark and the other Gospel writers tell us that upon the sixth hour of the day, darkness came upon the whole earth or upon all the land. And yet just imagine for a second that all the activity, all the hustle, all the bustle, it's midday, it's noon, the sun would have been at one of the highest places um, that it would be throughout the entirety of the day, that, that at the sixth hour the text says that the darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour. The, the, the scene is engulfed in darkness. It descends upon the entire um, episode, the event. You can imagine the surprise. It wasn't planned. It would have been unusual. It would have taken them all by surprise. And it very well may be that this is what silenced the scene. That there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness in Scripture is significant. It oftentimes symbolizes a cosmic reality. It, like so many other things, God uses to bring to light spiritual things. Even darkness. The Old in the Old Testament particularly, darkness was associated with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's God's visitation. It's a day in which His divine wrath is administered against sin. It's a day in which God's patience comes to an end. It's a day in which He suffered long enough with people. It's a day in which the all-merciful God has extended all the mercy. 
that He's going to extend and it ceases not because His mercies run out, but because it's been rejected by a sinful, lost, and lawless people. So He draws near with His sword. He unsheaths it, ready to administer justice as the judge of all the earth. And then darkness is often accompanied with that. Amos 8.9 says, It will come. Let me just... Uh, it will come about in the day declares the Lord God. And he goes on to speak about how darkness covers the entire land. But Exodus chapter number 10 is probably a more familiar portion of Scripture. You'll remember that in the Exodus, our Lord is leading them out of Egypt. And what does He use um, to provoke Pharaoh? He uses ten, what we call ten plagues. In Exodus chapter number 10 and verse number 21, you read these words. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all the land for three days. You know what plague was about to follow? It was the final plague. It was the taking of the firstborn. One commentator says this, in the exodus from Egypt, the plague of darkness had been God's last word to Pharaoh before the angel of death visited the land. Now the exodus was finding its ultimate fulfillment in Exodus, which Jesus was accomplishing at Jerusalem. There was a plague of darkness preceding the sacrifice of Christ as the Paschal Lamb. But this time, it wasn't Egypt's firstborn. It was God's own firstborn who was about to die. That at the sixth hour that day, a plague of darkness overwhelms the land. That, no doubt that could be felt. And that's because the wrath of God was about to be unleashed in, the, in a day of the Lord that, 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 may frighten, that, that would frighten any man. But this day was different than many of the other days. That was to come. On this day, the judgment wouldn't be poured out upon Roman soldiers. It wouldn't be meted out upon hypocritical Jews. It wouldn't be poured out or administered upon sinners of the utmost worst kind, most evil men throughout the ages. But it would be meted out upon our Lord Himself. That the day of the Lord would find its mark upon the one who was there nailed to Calvary's tree. That the darkness would come because judgment was coming. And it could be felt and silenced all. And in that, but that judgment wouldn't come upon mankind. That judgment would come upon God's Son, the God man, and create a silence upon which was probably unparalleled in human history that ninth hour. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Sama Bartani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry that we have called, Christians throughout the ages have called um, a cry of dereliction or, or, or more contemporary word would be a cry of abandonment. There's a poem by a woman by the name of Elizabeth Browning um, who, who refers to this cry as Emmanuel, God with us, Emmanuel's orphaned cry. Whatever these words mean is a mystery to us. But what we see here in Mark chapter number 15 and what we see um, subjectively from our Lord in Psalm chapter number 22 um, is, an, is, is a suffering beyond physical pain. It's a suffering beyond seeming suffering. 
I mean, it's a total abandonment of the Son by the Father. And what I'm going to do this morning is not try to reconcile that for you. Because there's no doubt that there's a mystery to that. And while we can understand something of what our Lord means for us to understand, we'll never understand the full depth and meaning or magnitude of exactly what happened here, but we should understand that it happened. John Flavel, a great Puritan, said, quote, the suffering of his soul, speaking of Christ, the suffering of his soul was the very soul of his sufferings. Or at the heart of Christ's sufferings um, was the suffering of his heart. That which happened inwardly, not ultimately outwardly. That what we have in the physical sufferings of our Lord do not compare to what happened in his soul that day. That what we have is that he experienced in those three hours, not not only in the darkness of of external nature, what we experience and are are, are allowed to glean into in places like Psalm chapter 22 is the darkness at that moment of his soul. That the light that had shone out not only in 33 years of life, but all throughout eternity in, in ultimate fellowship with the Father is now gone. Because of the brutality of the cross, every word costs Him something. And this is what He wants you to know this morning. This is what He wants us all to know. And not only was there physical pains, but there was an emotional, spiritual suffering that happened. And that's how He says, that's why He says these words, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That the Father, what is worse? I would conclude the latter. That, that in this moment, that in these three hours, our Lord had experienced something that He had never experienced before. And I can't explain that. I have no idea how to, how to communicate to you 100% exactly what reality is here. What can, I can tell you is that that in this moment for just a few hours and ultimately in His death, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ endured something greater than a, than a physical cross, but in a spiritual abandonment of the Father um, that He had never experienced before. One commentator writes, the, bur- the, the reason is, is because the burden of the world's sin, the complete identification with sinners, involved not a merely a, a felt, but a real abandonment by His Father. That he cries these things out. I want to give you a few things. He cries these things out because the sinless Son of God had truly been abandoned by the Father. I know that that seems like a simple statement and it seems like it doesn't need to be said, but there are people throughout the ages and even present today would say that he only thought that he was abandoned. But he wasn't truly abandoned. And I would dare say that our Lord knows more about His spiritual sufferings than we do. And He says that He was forsaken by the Father. Thus, we should take it that He was forsaken by the Father. That Jesus, up to this point, had full fellowship with the Father. He had the blessing of communion. He had the blessing of union with Him. That He had walked in perfect harmony, not only from that day, but in all eternity. But, not, but, but even just in His life. Imagine, just for a moment, unbridled fellowship with the Father. And this is something we need to understand. That, that what we have is a picture of Jesus as if He's just divine person in a human carcass. And what He does is He walks around and He's like a puppet with a hand in a human, 
in which he operates in his divinity day in and day out. But, but, but part of the, 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 the humility of our Lord is that he truly became a human. And I can't explain that. But in his humanity, he depended wholly upon the spirit. That's why in uh, Matthew chapter four, you'll, you'll see phrases like he was led out of the wilderness by the spirit. That, that, that our Lord in his humanity became like us in all points, such that he had to live the life that, that we were supposed to live and ultimately couldn't live. So much so that he, he submitted himself to the Father and to the Spirit, even as a, 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 an equal partner in the, in the, in the, in the Godhead. That, that, that's part of the humility. That's part of the sufferings. It's not just that part of the sufferings for him to come down and to die a human, a human death. But, but for 33 years of life, it is, it is in some sense suffering. As he lays aside his rights and majesties in heaven, and he becomes like a man to feel and to, 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 to hurt and to, to long and to weep and to cry and to hunger and to thirst. And he does it all, completely resting in the Father. He wakes up in the morning communing with him. He lies down at night praying to the Father. You know, Psalm, or Isaiah chapter 42 gives a, a great illustration of our Lord. And I think possibly even actual words of, of our Lord. Um, as you see, um, God talking to the Son. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 1, you read these words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles. I think it's the, the, the Father talking about the Son. It's, it's, it's God talking about Jesus. And what he would accomplish in this life, he says, Behold my servant, look at him. I uphold him. My elect one in whom I delight, my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor, nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A brood reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He goes on to say in verse number six, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness uh, from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another. And what he's saying is he's saying that, that when Christ comes, he will come as a man, as the God man. He will lay aside certain rights and majesties and He will live as a human. He will wake up and He will do everything that you are supposed to do with your strength, but also leaning wholly upon the very Spirit of God. I will keep Him, He says. I will uphold Him. So not only all throughout eternity was He in full fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, but even in His life, He submits Himself to humanity in such a way to serve us that He just wholly leans upon God. As he wakes up in the morning just leaning on the Spirit, he prays. He doesn't have a magical, um, magical get-out-of-jail-free card and he doesn't have to do these things because he's God. He literally becomes like you so that he could die for you. And he does it leaning wholly upon the very Spirit of God. And that in this cry, we see an abandonment of the Father. He's going to experience something that he's never experienced before. Imagine the pain of being with your mother or your father for all your life. And those few moments as you lie there holding their hand and, and, and the breath goes. Imagine the pain, the discomfort, the anxiety, the stress, the darkness that seems to fill the room. Because you know they're gone. 
You've never been without them. You just just know. You know? Life will never be the same. Sometimes you wonder, how could I go on? How could I live? How have I lived with? I've never lived without her. I've never lived without him. There's never been a day that I've walked where I didn't speak to that person. There's never been a day. I think about that with my wife now. Like, like I just wonder like, what it'll be like if I ever go before her. It's almost as if we've never been together our whole lives. But it's almost as if we have. I wonder how things would go. You know, how it would function. And, and, and it, it, it's almost fear overwhelming at times. You know? Because you begin to depend upon. You begin to become part of. You, there's this unit. And it's not just, just like she won't do things for me and that laundry will never get done. You know? It's not like now I have to take care of the kids. It's like, it's like we're one. You know? It's actually like Jesus knows what he's talking about. God, when he wrote, like you'll leave father and mother and like you'll become one. And like to break that is to break part of yourself. It is to take part of you away. You know, it is, it is, it is, it is to die on the inside in some sense because, because you were a part of that person. You know, imagine how, how intimate that is now and multiply that by infinite eternity. The Son of God with unbridled fellowship that all the things that often come between my wife and I or my parents and me that, 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 that would make me wish and deter and, and do a hundred other things that's never happened for the Son. He was with the Father all the time. They were together, totally united in full unity. And darkness falls upon the earth, but darkness too falls upon His soul in such a way that now He's been fully abandoned. And that's why He cries out in Psalm chapter number 22. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Where now will I go? For You I have ran to day in and day out for the last 33 years of my life. You have upheld me the reason that I have have been secured and sustained and maintained faithfulness, Father. Um, It's because your Spirit upholds me. What will I do now for the next three hours alone? Where will I go? How will I stay faithful? These are real questions that he he begins to, to ponder in his own heart in those three hours. That's what we read in Psalm 22. It's 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 a reality of the humanity of Christ. As he's now without the Father. We see that, that, that it was a true abandonment. We see that, that the, sinless God of, uh, the, the sinless Son of God was truly abandoned by the Father. Why? To take the place of sinners. That's why. That God had pointed out time and time again through the prophets that the sins of the world separated them from Him. Particularly Isaiah 59, you'll read these words, your sins have separated you from your God. The separation is a just penalty for sin. Paul says, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse of the law. He says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, that we have in the God-forsakenness. We use that as a byword sometimes, but it's true that that Jesus Christ was God-forsaken in some sense. That we have in the forsakenness The sinless Son of God stepping into the place of sinners to bear the curse, to be separated, and to become sin for us. The the question that He's going to ask, the answer is there. That He's forsaken. That He goes willingly to the cross. Regal King, Christ Jesus. And He pushes forward. Why? Because the sinless Son of God will take the sin, the place of sinners. He will become the personification of our guilt. 
He will cover our sin. He will um, overwhelm our filth with His righteousness. He's covered with our wicked imagination. He's covered with everything that God says I must punish. Again, Isaiah 59, that, 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 that He will not uh, be with sin. That sin separates. That's the idea. Sin separates you from God. And thus for Him to take upon Himself the personification of sin. For Him to be identified with sin in such a way that He takes upon Himself the guilt of all mankind. As God looks upon Calvary, God the Father flees His Son in His wrath. The holy wrath of God was incited that day. As the Father could not bear the sight and darkness rests upon the face of the earth. But even more so, the light of communion with the Father that had lit His soul up for 30 years is now gone. We understand that the wages of sin is death. And what do we see there on the cross? We see Jesus receiving in Himself the wages which we deserved. That the abandonment becomes not because Jesus Christ needs to be punished, but because we all do. Thus we see the sinless Son of God drinking the wrath, drinking the cup that sinners deserve. I think it's Psalm chapter number 78. Um, you'll remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you won't, but our people will remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, as our Lord is about to go to the cross and He agonizes in the garden and He begins to sweat drops of blood, um, wishing in some sense that there was another way. And in His righteousness, He can't even begin to fathom the day that will come in which He's abandoned by the Father. Um, and He does it as He looks into the cup. The cup is a symbol of, of God's wrath. It's a picture of what God will pour out upon, upon sin. And in Psalm chapter 75 and verse number 8, you read these words, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red, and it's fully mixed. And he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drink, drain, and drink down. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. What he's saying there is that in the cup represents God's just and holy wrath against sin. That surely whether you believe in God or not, you have some sense of justice. Right? A compass of right and wrong. A sense of knowing that certain things must go punished. Even if it's simply someone like Hitler, you know that it's wrong. That it's wrong in the world. The abuse of a child, the murder of the innocent, terrorism. You know it's wrong and you know that, that it should be punished. The idea here is, is that there's a moral right and a moral wrong. And that, that, that moral wrong will be punished. And that punishment is, is, is gathered up within this cup day in and day out as we accrue it, as we continue to sin against a holy God. And here it is. As Jesus Christ in Gethsemane looks into the cup and, and begins to shudder at what He must do, there it is, the, the, un, the, the unmediated um, wrath of an almighty God that will be poured out upon sin that the darkness will be felt in such a way. But if He carries on in the way that God desires, that He must drink that cup. Here it is, all that mixed together. All that men deserve is here in this cup. The wrath of God and mixed with mercy. And it's going to be poured out. 
But it won't be poured out upon Gentiles. It won't be poured out upon Jews. It'll be poured out into the mouth. God Himself, Jesus Christ, will drink it to its bitter dregs. Thus darkness covers the face of the earth and even His own soul. That He was absorbing the wrath that sinners deserved. That He's abandoned by the Father. Why? Because He's the personification now of sin. He takes upon Himself the guilt of all mankind. And, and this darkness comes in this form. Why? Because He's beginning. He's picked up the cup and He's beginning to drink that which sinners deserved. Hell that day came to Golgotha. What makes hell, hell? It's not fire and brimstone. It's not the presence of an evil one such as the devil. What makes hell, hell is that it is the place where God demonstrates His righteous wrath against sin. And the hell that came to Golgotha was the hell that we deserved. Because it was the cup that we conjured and created by even the sinfulness of our own hearts. We're not here today talking about Hitler. We're here talking about us. We're talking about the wrath that came upon Jesus. Not only in His physical sufferings, but in His spiritual sufferings. Because we sinned. We can ask the question today over and over again and we can wrestle with it and we can point fingers at God. How could the Father abandon the Son? I would never do that to my Son. We can look at it like it's divine injustice to punish the innocent one. We can look at it like it's cosmic child abuse for the Father for the Son. When in reality, it is the Father who poured out His judgment upon Christ who drank our cup. He went willingly. He went... uh, uh, he went to the, to, to the fullest extent. Why? Not to drink His own cup. Not because the Father made Him, but, but, but because for our cup. God may have drawn the sword, but we killed Him. We. We were the tool, the instrument by which, by, by, by which He was destroyed. He was abandoned not only physically, but spiritually because of us. A.W. Pink um, the commentator writes these words. He says, at the cross there is, then is, is, is nowhere else we see the infinite malignity of sin and the justice of God and the punishment thereof. We see the infinite malignity of sin. We see what sin is. We see what it does. We see the cancerous nation, na- nature of it. And we see the justice that God pours out upon it. You want to see what your sin looks like in eternity? Look at the cross. Don't just look at the nails in His feet or in His hands. Look at the darkness. Look at the abandonment. Look at Him there all alone. Receiving the full recompense of God's wrath upon it. Poured out there that day. That's what... We are the ones deserved to be forsaken. We are the ones who should be are, are, are the object of His eternal wrath. We are the ones who conjured it in our own souls and at the root of it. Now James says, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and he's enticed. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. It's born in us. There is a sense in which the, the death of Christ is born here. It's in us. The God-forsaken reality of the crucifixion of our Lord is bound up in His... In his but, but it's also bound up in His love for us. Right? And his desire to be made known. I don't want to pretend this morning like sin has any power over God because it doesn't. I'm not saying that, that, that because we're sinners, God had to do this. It's not because of that. It's not because of sin that He was crucified. It's, it, it was because He desired a people. And that's when you get to Psalm chapter number 22. 
And I'll read to you the first 20 verses. Uh, and in verse number 21, you read these words. But you have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him, all of you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. And when He cried, out to, when he cried to Him, He heard. But this cry, there is a sense in which it was heard and it was answered. But they're in the abandonment of God. It was for a purpose. It was because he was compelled by love and justice. The justice must be served. God is not an unruly judge in the heavens in which is, uh, just allows sin to go free and criminals to run rampant. But at the same time, for him to love sinners, um, he must deal with justice. People wonder and ask all the time, what's the significance of the cross? I just don't understand it. I'm going to tell you what the significant. This is where justice and love meet. Romans three twenty three through twenty six. That God is the just and the justifier. Everybody has this, um, you know, abstract form of what love actually is and looks like. And if I love the people, I just let them run free. Justice doesn't do that. You know, what if a judge sitting upon the bar today? Um, had murderers before him and pedophiles and just let them run free because he wanted to extend mercy. You'd be locking your doors and you'd be saying, remove that guy from the bar. This is God. He must deal with it. He must handle the sins of the world. And every one of us are criminals, yet at the same time, he's love. Why do you endure this, Lord? Because he's love. That, 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 Many people believe in Psalm chapter 22 and verse number 21 that this idea of you have answered me and I'll declare your name to my brethren is a, is a concept of resurrection. I know it took me 50 minutes to get here, but we're here, you know? That, 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 that you may be thinking that this is a dark sermon and this is a, 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 a dim type of preaching and he's trying to guilt me into this or trying to do this to me. Not at all. I labor in all of that to show you the loveliness of Christ. That, that, that He willingly partook of the abandonment of the Father and the physical sufferings of Christ. Why? Because He desired a people. He desired a people out of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. That's what He says in verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before Him. That what you find before the ages ever begin in Isaiah 42, we read earlier, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, is what you're going to find is this conversation between the Son and the Father. And the Father is saying, Son, you go and I'll uphold you. And the Son, Jesus Christ, is saying, I'll go if you uphold me. And He says, I'll give you my Spirit to uphold you. Why? Because I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people. I'm going, to, I'm going to, to, to shed blood and I'm going to make a covenant and a promise to you that when you go, that upon your faithfulness, I will hear your prayer. I will answer. You will be resurrected. You will be alive again. When you are, I will give you a people. That's the idea. You see that here? You read it this morning in Isaiah. We heard it this morning in Isaiah 53. I will give you a portion with the great, an offspring, a seed. 
that Jesus Christ is entering into the world. And don't think for a moment this morning, oh, poor Jesus had to die for my sins. He did not. At any moment, He could have removed Himself as they ridiculed Him from that cross and ended them all exacting justice. And He would have been right in doing so, but He didn't. Why? Because in all of His royal dignity, He kept His covenant with the Father. And Father kept covenant with the Son. And in taking upon Himself the sin of all mankind, when He rose on that third day, I mean, He ascended 40 days later to the right hand of the Father. He was given a kingdom in this world of which there will be no end. And it was made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue, every color, every class, and every creed. And that's why for 2,000 years, the Gospel has been piercing the nations and continues even to this day in unreached people groups in China and in Africa and the most in the hardest places. Why? Because Jesus received His reward. That's why. So don't think this morning of Jesus as, as oh, poor Jesus suffered because of me. Think of them as, as, as Jesus the warrior with short, sword unsheathed went to His death to win the victory and the power over death. And He did on that third day, Sunday morning, which we're, which we're, which we're celebrating this morning. He, rise, he rises up to receive the reward of His faithfulness. And you know what that is? That's you. That's me. Listen, He didn't just die a, a, a sinner's death and receive the guilt of all mankind to make it potential for you. He died for a people. He died for a, 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 a church. Out of every nation, tribe, and tongue that they would get up, that they would be alive, that as He lives, they live. And that they would go, Psalm chapter 22 says, that my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I'll pay my vows before Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All a posterity shall serve Him. I will be counted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. That He has done this. That because of Jesus' faithfulness in His death, He purchases a people purchases a people for His own. And these will be a people who are a church in the world all throughout. This will be a people in which He will be praised. Verse 23. This is a people which will have full satisfaction and happiness in Him. Verse 26 of Psalm 22. This will be a people of which shall be made up of men will extend to the corners of the earth and all sorts of people. All types. And this will be a people um, which will continue throughout the end unto all generations. Uh, Psalm 22, verses 29 through 31. That this is the glory of the cross. This is it. Jesus Christ meets the demands of justice and extends love to all the nations. How in His death, not only physically, but spiritually, taking upon Himself the cup of eternal wrath that we all deserve and we have all accrued and that we have all conjured in our hearts. And Jesus comes forth as a regal, glorious king and warrior for this, even this morning, for his people. And thus he offers it to you. And he offers it to me. That if we will come by faith and repentance, we will be a people who are not his people. That you will live, church. That you will live, men. That you will live, ladies. Boys and girls, that you will live in Christ. He died to free men. So live freely. What's the application this morning? That's it. He died to free you. He died that you may live. 
So live, man. And live freely. Stop living like slaves to the world and slaves to your sin. The infinite justice and wrath of God um, had to be satisfied and meted out so that you could be free. It had to be paid for before you could be redeemed. That infinite justice had to be satisfied by the infinite love and infinite grace of God. And in this moment, He experienced it all for what? For us. And if you understand this, Jesus is more than just an insurance policy. He's more than just an eternal vacation. He's more than just a solid guy to follow. He's more than just a sound teacher. He's more than just a, a, a guy who had a lot of things going for him. He's the God of heaven and earth and whom, and whom humbled Himself for sinners like us, taking upon Himself the eternal wrath and cup of an almighty God. Men praise Him. Live, men. Live. That if you're dead this morning outside of Christ and you're living enslaved to your sin, um, accruing wrath, uh, the very wrath of God, even in this moment as you just give yourself to yourself and, and your own endeavors and you're pursuing your own desires and a hundred other things in rebellion towards God, I, I beg you this morning to look and live. Isaiah says, look and live. Look to Christ. Rest in Him. Look to Him in faith and look to Him in repentance. You say, oh, I remember one of the first times I ever gave to a gospel to a young man. He said, if I do that, does that mean I have to give up this? And he said, you don't understand. You don't understand. Listen, man, if you do this, you, you, you don't just become an employee of, 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 of a great employer. You don't just... He's more than a than, than a sound teacher. You don't you don't just get insurance and you don't just get an eternal vacation. You get God in all of His fullness. You get Jesus Christ, the regal King of glory, who who, who leads the way in changing the world. And you get to serve Him. You know. You get, you, you get your sin cared for. You get ultimately forgiven. You get made one of the children of God. You get a father this morning. You know, you get, a, you get a leader. You get someone in whom is worthy to be served. Don't you want that man? You want someone, don't you? In which to just look to, to follow, to see his example. There's no other greater man this morning than Christ. Look to him and live. And live freely. And I don't just mean live in a way that you can do anything and everything that you want. I mean, live for Him, man. Live for Him. Live for Him. Live for Christ. Psalm chapter 22. Praise Him. Take His name. Declare His righteousness to the brethren. Take it into the highways and into the hedges. Take it to places that, 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 that men have never gone and will never go. Why? Because you see Him worthy. You look at Him this morning and you see Him worthy. Worthy of you. And I remember in college and seminary years ago, and I've told some of you this and I'll say it again. And there's an old um, illustration of a, of, a, of a missionary, two missionary young men um, who had came to Christ and um, were just overwhelmed with His glory and His majesty. Such to the point that they had heard of an island in which um, no man had ever been. Turns out that there were slaves that filled that island. The only way that you could get on is be a slave. The owner was a tyrant. Didn't want anything to do with God or man. 
these men had just developed such a burden that Jesus Christ needed to be ruled, uh, needed to rule and reign in every inch of the earth, and that he should be worshipped. Um, that they sold themselves into slavery. They took the money, and they bought themselves uh, with the money a boat ticket. And as they're sailing off, their families on the shore don't understand anything that they're doing, um, and they cry out that uh, the lamb that was slain should receive the reward of his sufferings. It became even to this day the Moravian mission cry. That these men went and these men saw the, the, the need um, to go, not because it was a great ideal or a great uh, plan or you know a, a great advertisement plan to get Christianity across. No, they understood what Jesus Christ did upon the cross and they, they, thus they understood what they were. They saw Him worthy. You say, why should I come to Christ today? Because He's worthy. He's worth it. And every inch Every uh, ounce of his being, he's worth it. This is the reason for which you were created. This is the reason for which you exist. This is the reason why you breathe even this day and you are to look at him in all of his glory and all of his majesty and you're to cling to him and you're to serve him for the rest of your days. That's it. That's why you exist. Every boy, every girl, every older man, every young man, every older woman, every young woman, you're wondering about what your purpose in life is. This is it. I give it to you today. It is to, to be knit in your mother's womb, to, to, to be raised to trust Him, and to spend your life being spent for Jesus Christ and that alone. You say, why? Because He's worthy. And if you're not convinced of that this morning, then I can't convince you. If you can't see this morning the, the glorious worth of Jesus Christ in his, in, his, in his crucifixion and abandonment and the love that He expresses to you in fulfilling all justice, I don't know how else to compel or to convince you. I don't have a marketing strategy. I don't have great advertisement skills. I just get up here and I yell at you for an hour <laughs> you know, about the worthiness of Christ. Praying that just God would use some fallible attempt to show you the glories and the majesty of Christ this morning. That He is worthy to be served, men. He is worthy to pursue after. He is worthy to teach your families. He is, so live, men. With Christ this morning, He rose that you might rise and He lives that you might live. But you must live for Him. For His glory. For His purpose. For His reality. So live. Live for Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 6 speaks of no longer being a slave to sin, but being free to live for Christ. That's what you're to be, man. You are to see Him so worthy this morning that He is to receive the reward of His sufferings, that, 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 that He paid the cost and He is to receive it this morning. When I stand before Him on that great day, that's the great question that will be asked. Did He receive me? I'm not saying did you receive Him in your heart when you were six years old and now you're banking on that as a profession. I'm saying did He receive you? Has He received your life? Has He received your faithfulness? Has He received your allegiance? Has He received you? He died for you. He paid the debt for you. And this morning, it is the right thing to do that He would receive you as His reward. You know that's true too, don't you? You know that when a man pays a debt or he pays for something, he should receive it. 
You go to the store and you buy a thing. What happens? You, you order it on Amazon and it doesn't come. What happens? You're, you're livid. Why? Because the injustice was done. The greatest injustice of all mankind is that for the last um, countless generations, men have entered into this world with a present reality of Jesus Christ ruling in creation, ruling in their conscience, and ruling in Christ. And, and, and they have went to their death without him ever being received, him ever receiving them. That's the greatest injustice today in all of the earth. It's not what's happening in the economy. It's not what's happening with, with uh, Ukraine. It's not what's happening in Russia. It's the fact that Jesus Christ is not worshipped in every inch of the earth today. In every nation and in every tribe and every tongue. And the injustice that's happening today is not only in those places, but it's in our homes, man. It's in our homes. Jesus Christ is not receiving the reward of His suffering in you and in me. That's the great injustice today that a man whom we are not worthy of would walk into this world and give his life a ransom for sinners. When we should have drank the cup, he drinks the cup and enters into a relationship with the Father like never before so that we could enter into a relationship with the Father like never before. That's the injustice. That such a man would walk worthy of God. And that we would look at him and we'd scoff and we'd ridicule and we would put him up on a cross today again if he was here. Why? So that we could live our own lives, our own way. The greatest injustice today is that Jesus Christ died that men may live. And today, men ridicule, mock, and walk the exact opposite way and continue on as dead men. And some of you are dead, never lived. That you think you have life. Because you have enjoyment and you have pleasure and you have this and you have that. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and He is the life. And that there is no other way to climb up. There is no other way to go over. There is no other way to pursue it. In Jesus Christ, in Christ alone this morning, He offers Himself to you. And, 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 and it is incumbent upon you to come. And when you do, men, you'll live. You have life. You have light. And you'll have it more abundantly. You'll see things like you've never seen it before. It'll give you desires like you've never desired before. You'll do things that people will think you're weird and crazy and unique and just quirky and, 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 just, and just wild. You know? The things you'll give up and the things that you'll run after and they'll look at you and they'll say, this man, I don't understand him, but he's living. He's living for something. And we've carried on our lives for, for most of them for years or decades and nobody's looked at and seen anything. Is it, uh, does the world see you living for Christ? Do you live because He lives? Has He received you this morning? If not, He's worth it. And may not another day go by with the injustice of you living our li us living our lives as if we live without Him. He's worthy this morning. Will you receive him? Or more, a better question is, has he received you? Are you living the life that he's ordained for you to live? This morning, does Jesus Christ receive the reward of his sufferings? He died for you, man. He died for you, women. Boys and girls, he died for you, and he deserves you. Has he received you? And if so, live. Live for God. Trust in Christ. Run after Him. Be forgotten.
that he might live in your children's lives and the generations to come. He's alive this morning. Are you? If not, I implore you on the authority of Jesus Christ to repent, to look to him and live. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of your amazing grace. What a reality this morning, Father, as we gather around of the life of Christ. And not only His life, Father, but His death. What a glorious Savior we have. What majesty dwells within Him. Father, we are unworthy. Father, we are unworthy to be in His presence. Father, we are men most vile and wretched in our own hearts, ready to be judged at any moment. Yet at the same time, I know that I never will be because I have a Savior in whom I rest this morning, who was abandoned by the Father that I may not be, who was punished on my behalf that I may never receive the justice of God in that way, forgiven of all my sins, Father, that I might live, and that I might live for Christ, I might seek after His glory in my family and in my, my life and in, in every area. So Father, help me live. Father, help me be faithful. Help me be a good steward. Father, help me be the man that my wife needs and that You've determined for me to be. Help me to be the, 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 the man that my children need. Help me to be the example, Father, and the model within this church. Help me to be the pastor, Father, and that, you, that, that, that honors and, and serves You. Father, help me. Um, sustain me as you did your son, Father, by your spirit, uh, that you may receive the reward of your sufferings in Christ Jesus. Father, overwhelm us this morning with a sense of justice, that we may see the depths that you reach down in, Father, that we may see the cup full um, in its justice and in its wrath, ready to be poured out upon all sinners. And at the same time, Father, help me, overwhelm me with your love. I'm to see that Jesus Christ would enter into the world and save a sinner like me. What grace and what love, Father, dwells within him. And as a result, Father, help me to live. Not to live of my own accord, running after my own desires, but let me live for him. Help me to seek after him, Father. Help me to glory in him. Father, help me. Um, to see Him worthy this morning, Father, of my life, of my family, of my church, of everything that I am, that I may give it to Him freely and wholly. God, that I may give it out of the gratitude of my heart, seeing what You gave on our behalf. Father, may Jesus Christ this morning receive the reward of His sufferings, not only in my life, but in this place, Father, and throughout all the nations. Empower preachers and pastors and men alike throughout all the nations this morning to preach the gospel with clarity, Father, and with power that you may receive the reward of your sufferings. God, in, the, in, their, in their most discouraged moments, encourage their hearts, uphold them by their spirit, Father, that the gospel may go forth and you do the work that, that, that you may receive, Father, what you deserve this morning in your Son, Father, in the nations. And Father, we trust you with these things. And... Um, because with them we cannot be trusted. 
So thank you, Father, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.